It's July 1981, and in this episode, I have an interview with Chuck Boucher, one of the founders of Origin Systems, and ported Ultima 2 and Ultima 3 to the Atari 800. For the magazine coverage, there's a great summary on DMA Access by Dave and Sandy Small and the Creative Computing. Compute Magazine has an article about home mortgage rates up to like 16% interest. In Softside, Scott Adams' column talks about piracy. And a new occasional feature where I will look at a magazine from another platform, look at Soft Talk from the Apple II platform. This is the Player Missile Podcast. I'm Rob McMullen, and we're ready for episode 10. Welcome back. Glad you're joining me again on another episode of the Player Missile Podcast. This is a podcast about Atari 8-bit games and magazines. I'm covering the magazines chronologically. I've worked up for about the middle of 1981. This is July 1981. And while I'm while we're here in 81, I'm kind of looking forward to 82, to tell you the truth, because I'm looking forward to some of the games, the really good games, the stuff, the games that I really think of as, as like games showing off the qualities of the Atari, I think really started showing up in 82. In 81, there's still a lot of the games that are, everybody's kind of like trying to understand the system, trying to really get the scrolling. There's no real big scrolling games yet. I don't know, I think 82, 83, and 84 are kind of really the heyday of the system. And then after that, you know, kind of the Commodore takes over and sort of the number of commercial games released anyway goes, goes way down. Not to say we didn't ever stop loving the Atari, or I didn't anyway. And I try not to be terribly topical in this podcast, you know, about current events and stuff, but something just happened just Today I just discovered about it that kind of makes me want to mention something. So if you've been around Atari's at all, you'll you've probably heard the name Jeff Minter. He has a company called Llamasoft. And wrote a lot of quality stuff on the 8-bit and the ST, and famously wrote um, Tempest 2000 on the Atari Jaguar. Well, today on Twitter, I found that the current Atari is preventing him from releasing a sort of reimagined Tempest called TXK, and Atari was claiming that he didn't invent Tempest 2000 or something. It was, just, it was a bunch of legalese and lawyery stuff, and it just got me to think. So the Atari that we're talking about here in this podcast is much different than the current Atari. I mean, the, the Atari that we know and love is long gone. Might as well be buried in the landfill at Alamogordo. And when we talk about loving Atari, we don't talk about loving Atari management, because I don't think a lot of people like the Atari management. Certainly they made a lot of decisions on how to market the Atari. Um, the thing I keep harping on is they didn't release developer documentation until Day Ray Atari came out, which is, in the podcast timeline, hasn't even, hasn't even occurred yet. And part of the reason why a lot of third-party games didn't really look as good as they could until 82 was because the developer documentation was unavailable or was, was very hard to get. Day Ray Atari, incidentally, is serialized in Byte Magazine starting in, I think it's September October of 81? I can't remember off the top of my head. But I will definitely start covering that, um, some Byte Magazine issues when that comes around. So the Atari name that exists today is just a shell company, almost like a licensing. That's all they do now, it seems. Atari was sold so many times. I actually incidentally had, I had stock in Atari right before the Trammels, I think, sold to JTS. This is important. Never listen to Rob for investment advice. He thought 20 shares of Atari stock in 1990 was a good idea. It was not. 
which was a hard drive manufacturer, and I found all this stuff out later, that they sold to the to JTS so that they, Trammels could get a position on the, a seat on the board in JTS, but not with the intention of doing anything with Atari. And then so Atari was then sold to various places. And Seriously, I cannot stress this enough. Invest in anything but whatever Rob thinks is going to do well. His track record is terrible. For a really detailed history, go to the Michael Current's website. And we interviewed Michael Current um, last episode. So the current owners of Atari are, are Infogram. I thought it was Infogrames, as if it were a misspelling of games. So yeah, that shows you how much um, the French really stuck with me. But they changed their name back to Atari in 2009. So yeah, poor lamented old Atari, old Atari Inc., Atari Corp. And I suppose if you would ask me, I sort of remember Atari Inc. more so than the Trammell era Atari Corp. I mean, Atari Corp was when the ST came out. And I had an ST, but had I known more about it, I probably would have gotten an Amiga, because the Amiga was developed by the same folks who developed the Atari 8-bit. And Atari almost licensed the Amiga, but there's a whole story there where Commodore actually swept in and bought them before Jack Trammell left Commodore. Or maybe in the transition between Trammell leaving and buying Atari. I don't know, it was all in the same time period, like early 84. But anyway, where was I going with this? I guess the point was is that the Atari Corporation that we're talking about here and the other podcasts are talking about is, is, is related in name only to the current Atari. And yeah, I personally don't support the current Atari's actions. Well, we're talking about Atari. It looks like there's a new Atari podcast in the works. It looks like it's going to be covering the Atari 5200. And the 5200 is really the same hardware as the 8-bit computers. It has a dis- different ROM. It's a smaller ROM, and so that it doesn't do some of the... You know, it doesn't have the disk I.O. and expansion cap- capabilities and that kind of stuff. But, you know, the Pokey, the Antic, the GTIA, all that stuff is in there. And a lot of games were able to be ported or hacked from the 5200 to work on the 8-bits. And some of the 5200 ports were better than the 8-bit ports of, you know, various arcade games. So I'm excited to listen to that podcast. I'll include a link to the show notes to the homepage. There's not much there yet, but um, I guess they're going to try to record here pretty soon their uh, episode zero, their introductory episode. Also, speaking of Atari, and I'm sure there'll be 5200s there, is the Atari Party in Davis, California. That's coming up on May 2nd, uh, 2015. So yeah, stop by if you want to say hi. I'd be happy to meet any listeners. I'll be giving away a Raspberry Pi and uh, showing off the Raspberry Pi, too, running Atari emulators. I'll probably, have the, I'll probably have Stella and, of course, Atari 800 to run the 8-bit stuff. And I'll see if I can get the ST emulators working. I haven't actually tried the ST emulator on Raspberry Pi yet. I don't have a good controller set up. And one of the listeners at the podcast, Rex Allison, um, showed this really cool MAME set, sort of tabletop setup that he built. So I was thinking about maybe I can try to build a little controller setup that I can bring with me, uh, and so that I, you know, people actually can play the games that I'm going to be showing on the Raspberry Pi. Because I have an old Epix 500XJ joystick, but it's pretty flimsy, and I think one of the, one of the directions just stopped working. I'm I'm uh, trying to play the Atari Age High Score Club this season. I'm trying trying to do it regularly, but I can't seem to go straight left. I can go kind of left and up and left and down, but I can't go straight left. I don't know what's up with that. So I don't know if there's a misalignment somewhere, but. Uh, as if my scores suffered that much from not having a working joystick, because I don't think they're going to change a whole lot. But it's a good excuse. I've mentioned several times in the podcast, I'm also thinking about going to Kansas Fest this year. I'm really close to getting my travel plans all set up. It's July 14th through 19th in 
Kansas City, Missouri. And ostensibly it's an Apple II Fest, but there's going to be several Atari podcasters there. I think Kevin Savitz is going to be there. I'm pretty sure Wade from Inverse Tasky is going to be there. Hopefully I'll be there. Looking forward to meeting some of the other Apple II podcasters that I listen to as well. And I'm going to try to come back to the Bay Area for that weekend to go to California Extreme, which is an arcade show. So it's uh, going to be a packed week that week. Got some feedback. Uh, friend of the show, Kevin Lund, who is the same guy who encouraged me to include the Softside magazine in the podcast, sent me a note and said, uh, Well done, as usual. Well, thanks, Kevin. I appreciate that. said, You mentioned in the podcast you're going to try to update Star Raiders and the explosions. And I thought this thread might help uh, that I started a couple years ago on Atari Age. There's some good links and downloads that might be of some assistance to you. So he sent me a link to this um, a forum thread on Atari Age which I will link to in the show notes. And essentially it talks about this, is, is was it ever, was the Star Raiders ever fixed? Was the, were the explosions, the slowdowns ever fixed? And there's a bunch of, there's probably three or four pages of stuff in this thread. And it's been very useful to go through. And I, from that I found another link to, well, I'll talk more about this in the, in the tech section of the podcast. Got an email from a friend of the show, Siegfried Lentz. He said, Hi, first thanks for continuing the podcast, which I enjoy listening to while commuting. Unfortunately, I live, I live too close to my workplace, so I have a huge backlog. And you mentioned Le Stick in the podcast, and while I never owned one, I had a chance to try one out. Even though Vienna was a city of one and a half million in the early 80s, there were only a handful of stores that carried Atari stuff, and even less that really had them on display to try out. Computer City was one of them, and despite a strong feeling of not really being wel- welcome as a 15-year-old, they would let you try out stuff if you asked. So reading Compute Magazine and never seeing any of the cool third-party stuff advertised and reviewed there... It was rather miraculous to see a list stick, so I asked to try it out. It looked and felt cool, but it wasn't pleasant to use, as there was no way to release the stick to stop movement and no tactile feedback for the center position. So you kept moving around the the screen, unable to stop or maneuver precisely. I remember being unable to stop my blinking dot on the Star Raiders galactic chart and instead saved my money for a Wico joystick. Or is it Wico? 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 I don't know. I guess I always said Wico, but maybe it's Wico. But back to Zagreed. But today I regret I didn't get the list stick as it would have been at least a collectible if not playable. I think the basic fault with the design was that you really don't naturally hold your hand upright in a relaxed, neutral position. Apparently there was a freeze or center button according to reviews, but that probably wasn't natural enough to use. And then he says, Maybe I should go for an Atari-compatible stick podcast. That field seems to be unfilled as of yet. So, thanks Zagreed. Thanks for the review of the, the stick. Yeah, I was kind of wondering about that, if it would be hard to use, and I, obviously it was. And I exchanged emails with him again, and uh, I was wondering if that Computer City was the same chain as the Computer City stores over here, and uh, he thought not. He said the logo was different, and uh, there were other Computer Cities, or more of them over there. At the American version, I think only had five stores in all of Europe. On Twitter, I got some feedback from uh, user 8BitRocket, who suggested that I start looking at Computer Gaming World. And uh, yeah, I think I will. It, they, Computer Gaming World starts up, the first issue is the November, December 1981 issue. And I, yeah, I, I think I will add that to the magazine list. I haven't really looked at it in depth, but I think it covers Atari pretty much right away. And finally on Twitter, Bill Kendrick said he listened to this podcast at 1.2 times speed. Sometimes I think I'm barely understandable at normal speed, so I can't imagine 1.2 times speed. I'm going to sound like a buzzing insect or one of those aliens that moved at hyper-accelerated speed in that one old Star Trek episode. But here we go. I'll speed this up and we'll see what I sound like at 1.2 times speed. So Bill, you'll be listening to this at a rate of 1.2 squared. So, yeah, good luck. 
Talking about my maiden cabinet progress. Yeah, I haven't I haven't had much progress. Just doing a lot of thinking. Well, think me up a cup of coffee and a chocolate donut with some of those little sprinkles on top, will you? As long as you're thinking. It has made me wonder about some of the games I'm going to play on it. And I thought about Pac-Man and trying to make, like, I don't know, like an easier version of Pac-Man for kids. So I thought about trying to hack the Pac-Man arcade source to do that. But the problem is it's written in, it's a Z80 processor, and I don't know Z80 assembly. But I found this great website. Thanks to No Quarter. It's called Let's Hack Arcade Games. I'll include a link to the sh- in the show notes. But it's all about Z80 programming and doing exactly this, hacking on arcade source. So I don't know, I'm really intrigued to see if I can... Because what I'd like to do is like reduce the number of ghosts. Maybe just there's one ghost chasing you around. So it'd be easier for you know little kids to, to play the game without being totally frustrated that the, that the ghosts are just surrounding you and you know the game's over too quickly. So check out that website. It's great. It's a pretty much... Right now, it's like an introductory um, Z80 assembly course. I don't think... Last time I checked, they didn't have uh, any planned hacks yet. Okay, let's talk some tech. So yeah, just a reminder, the tech section of the podcast, I'm trying to hack Star Raiders so that it doesn't slow down during the explosions. And so basically what that's going to entail is trying to replace, or at least I think at this point, trying to re- what it's going to entail is to replace the division algorithm with some probably table-driven thing that's going to take up a lot take up a lot more memory, but will be much faster. So my first step was trying to figure out how to convert the game so that it wouldn't be a cartridge image anymore because the cart images are limited in size. So I wanted to convert it to be a regular executable file. And that took a little bit of hacking with CC65. CC65 is pretty configurable, and the, it's linker. You're able to specify sort of segments and where to put segments on the, in the in memory. But I had a hard time sort of figuring out the documentation. So I found a couple useful links. There's a the Atari Age user, user dev web CL, had a bunch of CC65 example files, which sort of helped me look at some of the linker configuration things. And then there were a couple thread threads on Atari Age that I found. So basically you have to set up this linker configuration file in order to specify the format of the executable. And as it turns out, it can generate Atari executables almost directly. You just have to set up a few segments in your source code. So these Atari Age links that I found that I'll include in the show notes were helpful in figuring this out. And I, I found an example, and I modified it, and was able to create a Star Raiders executable. So I'll check in this code at GitHub, and if you want to follow along, you can check out... I think I'll probably probably tag it by episode number. So this will be tagged like episode 10. And then if you want to check out the progress I've made at each individual episode, you can check out... You can look at the... When you clone the GitHub, you'll get all the tags, and you can check out the tag of uh, of this episode's work. Atari executable formats are interesting. It, they um, It's pretty convenient. It starts with just two FF hex bytes... And then it, it describes chunks, so you give it a, a start address and an end address, and then it reads data until it fills up that that chunk of memory, and then it expects the header for a new chunk. So you, you, the next chunk then will be a start address and an end address, and then the the memory to fill those between those bytes. And also, as it turns out, there are two special memory locations that the Atari will look for when it's loading a file. There's an initialization 
address and a run address. So every time the initialization address gets populated, so it's a hex 2e2, if you put a 2-byte value in the initialization address, after every segment that gets loaded, DOS will jump to that, or actually JSR to that, and it'll run that code. So this is before the whole program is completed loading. It'll run that code and it'll expect an RTS returned from subroutine. And then it'll go out back and continue the loading process. So you can have chunks that get executed as the disk is file is being loaded. And at the end of the load, when there are no more segments to be loaded, it checks the run address, which is hex 2e0, and uses the jump to start the program's execution. So one of the chunks that you've got to set in the, ex- in the entire executable must be to load address 2e0 with, with some address that it's going to jump to. Otherwise, your program will never start. At least won't start automatically. It'll be loaded to memory, but if you don't load in 2e0, then it's never going to start from uh, DOS itself. You'd have to then jump to it some other way. I think, I think there's a DOS command run ad- at address, isn't there? I don't remember. But anyway, yeah, so that I now have an executable version of uh, Star Raiders. I'll put it up on GitHub. And so that was the first step. The next step for the next episode... Yeah, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. So, <laughs> stay tuned. On to the magazines. The first magazine we'll look at is Compute. This is issue number 14 for July of 1981. The cover is about home applications. It's like a home heating and cooling audit, um, estimating gas mileage, inflation-adjusted loans. Uh, for Atari-specific stuff on the cover, they say, Adding a Voice Track to Atari Programs Part 2. Opening up, uh, early on there's an ad for the first book of Atari, which is available in late July. And I looked through my books, I have the third book of Atari, and let's see, it's the first book of Atari graphics, and then I have Mapping the Atari by Ian Chadwick. And Kevin Savitz posted on Twitter that he's got an interview coming up with Ian Chadwick. So I'm excited to hear that. I use Mapping the Atari all the time. It's a great book. Just a reference of all the memory locations and what they did. I'll include a link um, in the show notes to Mapping the Atari, because Kevin Savitz had scanned that one and OCR'd it, so he's got it on his Atari Archives website. And I'll include a link to Ian Chadwick. It was an interesting guy. He was elected to the town council of Collingwood, Ontario three times, and I would totally vote for any Atari 8-bit user in any election. So let me know if you're running for something. Referencing on the front cover, there's this article about inflation-adjusted loans. And so I just thought them, some of these numbers were really interesting. So the, it starts off, uh, the author says, In June, my house mortgage comes up for renewal. The interest rate on my mortgage is going to jump from 10.75% to 16%. And I just have to, I'm stunned. that I, of course, only bought my first house just recently. And, you know, interest rates were, what, 5% or something? So to have a 16% interest rate is just astounding in this day. He goes on to say, My monthly payments are going to go from $463 principal plus interest to around $680 total. But yeah, it just made me think it's just <laughs> it's a different time now, you know. So he presents, he presents some programs to calculate stuff, and it's only for the Apple and TRS-80 and the PET, not the Atari, so I'm not really looking at it in detail. But, you know, the idea to use a computer program to figure out what your, if it's advantageous to pay your loan off early or refinance or something. I don't know, it's complicated. I, I kind of talk myself in circles, so 
I'll probably edit this out. Note to the listener, he did not. There's an article about string conversions. It's how to make conversation with your computer. So it's like the basic usage of substrings. And most Microsoft basics use like mid-string, where Atari used slices, kind of like Python. So it's kind of about like writing an Eliza-style program, which is like the sort of simulate intelligent responses. There's a special section of the magazine called Home and Educational Computing, which is the VIC-20 section of the computing of the magazine. It's called the Resource Magazine for the VIC-20 Computer. And I kind of flipped through. I didn't, I'm not really going to cover this, although at some point I will cover Commodore 64. And in fact, in this episode, I'm going to cover an Apple II magazine. But that's a bit of a spoiler, so I won't say any more than you have to keep listening. In the Atari Gazette, there's uh, Adding a Voice Track Part 2. And honestly, I don't remember Adding a Voice Track Part 1, but I must have covered it. But it's all about the usage of uh, tape techniques. I don't know if people still use tapes today. It's kind of one of those branches of the Atari that I certainly don't have any interest in revisiting. All I remember about tapes is just slow. I'm looking forward to um, Wade's review of conversational French, though, to see, because I know those relied heavily on uh, the tapes. So I'm kind of interested to see how that's going to go. There's an article on the GTIA and the 16 color modes. It's kind of an overview of those um, 80 by 192 modes where you could get 16 colors on the screen at once. There's an article that it's the assembler joystick driver. It's a sort of assembly code to monitor, monitor the joystick. And it gives you like delta X and delta Y values rather than having to do the bit manipulation from basic, which is slow. Well, essentially basic doesn't really have bit manipulation. So you have to check. There's like this big if then table to check which direction the, the joystick was pressed. There's an article about how to remove DOS when you don't need it anymore. You need to reclaim some extra memory. And there's a little blur about memory protection for the Atari, about using memlow, which is hex 2E7, to reduce the amount of memory available to basic so you can store stuff below this. And I think that's stuff uh, below memlow is preserved during a system reset. And there's another article about programming in basic for uh, chaining programs together. Because it says, and kind of obviously, structured programming is not easy in Atari Basic. You know, there are no name subroutines or anything like that. You just go to line numbers, go subline number. That's about it. You can enter programs into memory, so you can actually load other programs, and they'll kind of merge into your line number space. But I don't really recall this. It says a running program can only have one enter command. This little program it prints out an enter command, moves the cursor, and then you're just required to hit return to process it. Creative Computing is Volume 7, Number 6, July 1981. The cover is a focus on printers and word processing. Also, they list the Computer Othello Tournament, report on the West Coast Computer Fair, and more on Atari graphics. There's an ad for Text Wizard by Datasoft. It says it transforms Atari into a powerful, serious word processor. I don't remember it, but this ad claims it's important, so I bet we'll cover it. So there's a bunch of articles on word processors, although none for the Atari. So I'm going to skip over those. There's a lot of talk about dot matrix printers and the limitations therein. And so this is really, it's the time where when you conform to the printer, rather than the printer doing what you wanted. So the printers had built-in fonts, and you were stuck with those, unless you wanted to print um, graphics modes, which were slower, sometimes much slower. I think some dot matrix printers wouldn't even do arbitrary graphics. But it was just kind of fun, again, to look at some of the fonts, you know, the compressed and the condensed. Mm-hmm. Then they had extended fonts, and sometimes you only had, you know, the basic ASCII, some, like, 90 characters. So to make 
stuff with accents, you'd have to backspace and use an apostrophe over an E or something. So yeah, I definitely don't miss the printer technology of 1981. There's an article on the Othello tournament, um, and last month there was an article about uh, computer Othello strategy. So this month the author, Stephen Kimmel, put four computer opponents. So he pitted them all against each other, actually, and then they went through this little tree and then he played the winner. So there are four games. There's Flip Disk from Creative Computing, Othello from Instant Software, Othello from Mad Hatter, and Othello 5 from Peter Fry. And he said that most just tried to get pieces without regard to the edges and, you know, sort of without regard to the point value of the individual squares, if you're thinking of like, a, you know, a weighted value of a square, like the corners are worth a lot more than anything in the row adjacent to an edge. But he said Othello 5 beat the author 7 out of 8 times. So clearly that that program was taking advantage of, you know, more knowledge about what squares are worth more than others. There's an article on the West Coast Computer Fair, which was April 3rd through the 5th, 1981. There was some Atari stuff there. Axelon was there, showing off some of their RAM products. Lustick was there. Brotobun Software was there. And Atari itself wasn't exhibiting, but the um, Software Acquisition Group was there. And that's the group that was um, APX and, you know, bringing outside developers in to, to either sell through APX or, um, if it was good enough, to be sold through Atari itself. OSS was there and uh, showing off Basic A+. And in there, there was a picture of Kathleen O'Brien. And Kathleen O'Brien was one of the recent interviewees on uh, Antic, the Atari 8-Bit podcast. So I'll include a link to that in the show notes. There's an article on the quest for the perfect printer and sort of had a big comparison table of printer features. And yeah, as I mentioned just a second ago, the you were kind of limited by the printer itself, so you had to know what kind of features you were, were important to you before you bought your printer. You know, nowadays, of course, everything is just, just you know, essentially addressable dots. And so you get whatever image you can generate on the computer, you can plop over to the printer. There's an article on software techniques of digital music synthesis. And, you know, it's talking about digital sampling and stuff. And there's something called the Nyquist rate, which is how often you have to sample something in order to reproduce the sound. Like for a sine wave, you gotta, you've gotta sample it at least twice the frequency of the, of the sine wave in order to reproduce it exactly. If you sample it less than that, what you actually get in the sample is you, you think you get, you get a sine wave of a much longer period. So it sounds, what would it be? Longer period equals lower frequency. There we go. So yeah, an electrical engineer, I was not. There's an article of Atari Graphics Unveiled Part 2 by Dave and Sandy Small. And this is a, it's an excellent long article. It's seven pages. And it talks about sort of the inner workings of the 6502 and Antic and how they're related. And it makes the point that the Antic is a processor in its own right because it takes programs. It takes display lists. Display lists are Antic's programs. And they explained DMA, direct memory access, in a way that really made sense to me. So it was never really clear to me how and where Antic was stealing cycles, but you know, now that I think about it all, it, it does make sense. And I finally clicked, so the Antic steals processor cycles when it's drawing the screen, but not during the vertical blank. And I don't know why that never really clicked before, but of course, if, if nothing's being drawn on the screen, the Antic won't steal cycles. So I'm just going to read this paragraph. It says, Since the Antic and the 6502 share memory, there's a possibility that both will need something from memory at the same time, and both can't access it simultaneously, so in order to prevent Antic from falling behind, 
It will turn the 6502 off completely until it's finished with its memory needs. It then accesses memory as fast as it can, gets done, and turns the 6502 back on to get back to work. This is known as cycle stealing, for it steals the memory out from under the 6502. And it goes on and has a sort of a plain English walkthrough of the display list and bit pa- patterns and display memory. So it's a very good article. And, um, yeah, it's funny. I just never really completely understood that until it just kind of clicked. And, and uh, yeah, their pros helped me understand that. So the Outpost Atari this month is by George Blank. It's a teeny little article. It's just two pages, kind of uh, summarizing the advantages of the Atari. You know, almost if you're trying to persuade your friend to, to buy one. And really, at this point, all you got to have to do really is to plop in Star Raiders and say, oh, there you go. You have an Atari, too. There's some pricing. The 16K Atari 400 now goes for $399 or uh, 1085 in 2015 dollars. So the VIC-20 this time is like $299. And he's got the full keyboard and stuff, even though it has less memory. You know, I think the success of the VIC-20 allowed them to do the Commodore 64, which did then blow the doors off the sales numbers for the 8-bit computers. And to wrap up this edition of the Creative Computing, what could possibly be on the back cover? The Ohio Scientific Computer. Softside Magazine is issue number 34 for July of 1981. On the cover is a picture of some poorly played volleyball. (laughs) It's kind of a funny picture because it looks like the net is set up about two feet above the ground. As usual, there's only a few things I'll talk about in Softside. The first is the Say Ho column by Scott Adams. So he's talking about piracy, and he, he responds to a letter that the magazine received. So this letter writer said that piracy involves taking the creation of an author, copying, and then selling it without the authorization of the author. That's what this letter writer said. And he goes on and has a bunch of invectives against Scott Adams and how he sort of defined piracy, kind of berates him a little bit says that Scott Adams was trying to mislead people when he was talking about piracy. And sort of the pirate's ring. And, you know, I include this, I include myself in this category when I was a kid. This this letter writer says, Did he ever lend a friend a book and then feel guilty about the money he was not get going to the author? Would he suggest that a snowthrower company sue three neighbors that chipped in and all share one machine? Would he close all libraries? Would he outlaw VCRs and tape recorders? How much does Mr. Adams pay Tandy for creating a market for his programs, or is he leeching off their huge gamble? The problem with Mr. Adams and his ilk is that they fail to see anything but their own parochial interest. They easily forget about what they owe their contemporaries and predecessors. I'm sure Mr. Adams never inquired of Microsoft if he could use BASIC in his programs. What one friend gives or lends to another is neither the government's nor Mr. Adams' business. So Scott Adams responds, he says, His main argument appears to be that programs are like books. And one person can read a book and then give it to a friend without fear of moral or legal repercussions. I agree 100%. Giving your friend your original copy of a program you no longer want is indeed well within your rights. But public libraries don't give out copies of books that they have made themselves. They only lend out the originals. If you give your friend a copy of, say, Adventureland, how does that hurt me, the author? Well, not really, of course, but if that was the extent of it. What inevitably happens is that one copy is then copied and then given to the friend of the friend and so on and so on and so on. And if everyone gave just one friend of a a copy of program and that had bought it, it would cut sales in half. Now think of the reduction when one of the original ends up generating 10 or 20 or even 50 copies. Yes, I do feel very strongly that giving your friend a copy of any copyrighted material is both legally and morally wrong. Not only does the author suffer, but in the end, everybody suffers as the whole industry suffers. And I sort of agree with that. I've said many times in the podcast that I think one of the reasons the Atari market kind of went away is, is the rampant piracy and the 
companies just didn't see it profitable to release continue releasing software for the Atari. And he says, you know, one copy might end up generating a, a 10 or 20 copies. If you listen to the recent Antic interview with um, with Alan Watson of Ozark Softscape, the folks who did Mule and Seven Cities of Gold, he talks about Mule in particular, and the numbers he used, he said, for every one legitimate copy of Mule, there were 12 others that were pirated. Scott Adams continues, he said, another point raised was that I have taken more from this industry than I have ever given. I really hope that he's wrong, as, as this type of accusation really makes me feel bad. But I will leave it up to you out there in the real world. Write and tell me if you feel this is true. I have always tried only to market software that meets what I call the cinema ticket rule. You should get as many hours of enjoyment per dollar spent for a program as you would per dollar spent on cinema tickets. And, you know, I've not played a lot of Scott Adams stuff, but clearly he's a pro, both a prolific author and a well-respected one. And I don't, <laughs> I don't agree with the letter writer. Yeah, I don't believe someone who writes programs and markets them takes more than they give. As someone who writes software for a living, you know, professionally, it takes a lot of time and effort to write stuff. And sure, you build on technologies of others, but it's reasonable to expect to get paid for your work. I also do a lot of open source stuff, and so I think of open source as a way to give back to the community that I've used. You know, I've used a lot of open source stuff and haven't paid for it, because that's sort of the point of open source. You share the stuff and contribute back if you can make a difference. And if someone doesn't believe in sort of the commercial software, then they can go to the open source movement. And if you contribute back to the open source movement, that's a way to, to give back. Even if you don't contribute to the same project, if you were to contribute to a different project, it's still the whole community benefits. Anyway, I suppose that's enough pontificating about piracy and stuff. Although, as you'll probably see, piracy is going to be a recurring theme in the in this podcast. Okay, anyway, so the next thing we'll talk about is there's a program, an article about the a chemistry drill program. So it, it's a, something to quiz you on elements, radicals, oxidation states, and all sorts of other chemistry terms that I don't know about. Chemistry was not my favorite subject. There's another game, um, it's called Codemaster, which is to guess a randomly generated five-character string in ten guesses or less, which, I don't know, didn't sound terribly appealing, so I didn't try it. There's a little text adventure called Kidnapped, where you try to escape a building past the kidnapper, and it uses like a two-word get-lamp-style parser. I didn't try that one either. The one game I did try was called Space Lander. It's a little lunar lander game written in um, basic and interesting that there's no rotation and it. it doesn't look like it uses player missile graphics it's all sort of hand drawn pixel art stuff. So you can kind of see the little lander getting drawn every frame. It's certainly not a great game, but it's something that, you know, looking at this game in basic, maybe you could learn about game logic and sort of, like, expand on that. Yeah, so at this point, I'm still thinking the soft side programs are are pretty searching for a synonym of basic. So I don't mean basic the language, I mean, like, simplistic. Maybe that's, <laughs> maybe that's the term. And I haven't really looked ahead in SoftSide, but I, I suspect it'll get more advanced as the magazine moves forward. Well, here's something new. We're going to try a new little segment here. Magazines of the Enemy. Magazines of the Enemy. 
Or maybe magazines is the competition to be a little bit less sort of us versus them. So this is a feature I, ho- I hope to do, you know, semi-regularly. Certainly not every every episode, but I'm gonna let's look at a single magazine of the you know the monthly time period of some other platform. And so this this is gonna be the magazine Soft Talk, which is an Apple II magazine. Soft Talk Volume One, Number Eleven, for July of 1981. And before I get into the magazine itself, I'm gonna go over a little bit of the history of Soft Talk. It was how I sort of came about this magazine. I didn't really see it. I don't remember it um, in 81. This is still the time period probably just before I um, started the school that had the Apple computers. So yeah, summer 81. And it was... Uh, so the magazine was published starting in September 1980 and it ran monthly through uh, August of 84. And then it just sort of suddenly ceased publication. So I'm... You know, I may have seen it in school, but I don't remember it. I asked around to some of the Apple II folks that I've met via the podcasting, and Paul Hexton really suggested that this one might be the closest one to analog, so covering all aspects of the system, but also having sort of a, a, tech, a technical bent. You know, I like the... My favorite magazine is really probably analog because of the machine language games, and within Soft Talk was a column called Assembly Lines, where it was a, a continuing, it's like serialized column to, uh, learning 6502 assembly, and so each article would build upon the last. Soft Talk has an interesting history of how it started up. Uh, a woman named Margot Tomervik was a contestant on the game show Password, and she won enough that she bought an Apple II computer. And then uh, apparently a, a local computer store was running a contest to see who could solve this, um, I guess it was online software's mystery house adventure. So the first person to solve it would get some a prize, and so she said that she solved it in 24 hours. But she she got involved in the, in the computer and discovered there was a um, an Apple II software company called Soft Tape that sold Apple II stuff on cassette tape, oddly enough. And it was apparently it was located near her, so she went to visit. And then she and her husband Al decided that they were going to take the um, the newsletter that this company developed and turn into a, a glossy magazine. So its first issue, its first real issue was like 32 pages printed on newsprint, but it, uh, it said in a year it went over to over 100 advertising pages in each issue. Apparently at, at its peak it was over 400 pages, and I think that was in the 83-84 time frame. So there's a nice summary of, of this history over on the apple2history.org website. I'll include a link to that in the show notes. And in that link they sort of talk about the end of the magazine, which occurred pretty suddenly... Apparently they tried to find more sources of revenue, but they never actually took any revenue other than the uh, the Tomervix money. The Apple2History.org site kind of speculates on what the factors were in the demise of the magazine. And one of them, of course, was the number of magazines in competition with them. You know, each new magazine potentially could reduce the amount of advertising that any one magazine would receive as the companies try to figure out which, you know, where to spend their advertising dollars. And they say another another factor was the IBM PC and that sort of explosion of that machine onto the market. Notice they don't mention the Atari in here. <laughs> Atari apparently was not enough of a factor. And the economic recession of 82 to 84, it said it was uh, something as a kid I don't really remember, but yeah, there's always ups and downs in the, you know, in the real world economy that affects what you can spend your discretionary income on. So the um, Apple2History.org site sums up that by uh, that last issue, August 84, it has shrunk down to only 128 pages, and then 
The next issue was in the works, but it never made it to the printer, and it said the remaining subscriptions were filled out by Insider Magazine. So as we look at this uh, particular issue, the cover price was uh, $1.50, and the cover as a chimney sweeps holding an Apple II computer standing on a roof. I'm looking at this. There's not full scans of many of the magazines. This is from Paul Hagstrom's website. I'll include a link to this um, to the issue in the show notes. He's got a couple issues scanned. It's a it's a full color magazine with photos and printed ads. One of the thing you know this is my first time looking at it really, and one of the things that sort of jumped out to me immediately was that the formatting is different for each article. So each article title has a different font layout, um, you know typeface. It's um, as a first time reader, I, f- I felt that I was, it was a little bit confusing actually. It's like what's the article and what's the advertisement on a page because some articles had boxes around them just like some of the advertisements did and i wonder if that changed if it was a more consistent formatting later on or if if they're just still kind of feeling their way around as a kind of the cross between a newsletter and a magazine there's a bunch of stuff i remember from the apple my apple two days there's an ad for the game called gorgon by Sirius software and i i remember this i don't remember exactly how to play it but i remember actually playing it Sirius software was was a big uh, publishing house for the apple twos back then there's an article on strategic simulations overview. There's a bunch of war games and stuff. There's an ad for Letter Perfect, the Apple edition, $149. And Wade covered this in his uh, Season 1, Episode 2, the Atari version. So I'll include a link to Inversitasky podcast in the show notes. There's an article called Basic Solution. It's all about Apple Integer Basic, which is much different than Atari Basic. And there's a listing and stuff. And I remember like the HTAB and VTAB. I remember programming that in AppleSoft. Or an integer basic, rather. Yeah, I don't remember the difference between AppleSoft basic and integer basic. I suppose the <laughs> integer basic is the implication that it's just integers, and maybe AppleSoft has floating point. So maybe AppleSoft is the Microsoft basic. There's another article called Ventures with VisiCalc, and all about the Apple II version of VisiCalc. And it talks about the DIF format, the diff format, which Wade talked about in his Season 1, Episode 8. And I wonder if that's the same. I wonder if that diff format is readable today, even. So I, I know that is a an importable file format. But I wonder if it's just a if it's a totally different format or if it's still if you can still read old eighties spreadsheets with current uh, spreadsheet programs. Another article called Mind Your Business about converting businesses to use computers. It's sort of takeaway was that there's no turnkey business system that does your work for you. You still have to do a lot of work to set all this stuff up and to convert over. And the next article is one that I was really looking forward to reading. This is Assembly Lines by Roger Wagner. The subtitle is Everyone's Guide to Assembly Language, and this is part 10. So there's a big list of all the assembly uh, commands that he's already covered. So it looks like the, a lot of the load store commands, the, the TAX, TOI, the, the register transfer commands, the increment and decrement commands, a lot of the branching stuff, uh, JSR and RTS, and jump. And so this one, he talks about the carry bit and the ADC and SBC command, so it's add with carry and subtract with carry, and the CLC command, clear carry. And I might talk a little bit about assembly language in the text section of subsequent podcasts. The next article is the cover story. It's an interview with Wade and Nancy Harris, who are chimney sweepers, and how their computers affect their business. So they talk about you know scheduling and stuff, and how that has changed their business model. Another article called Pascal Path, which is all about the language Pascal, and it Pascal was not a big one on Atari, but I remember learning Pascal on the Apple II, and I think it was I think it was a lot bigger on the Apple II than it was on the Atari. Atari did intend to release a version of Pascal that 
I think eventually it was released on APX, but it was not that complete. I, I covered this in a briefly in a pre- earlier episode, and I think it really wasn't that useful because it it didn't have a debugger and or it was just not it was not complete. There's an ad for a game called Raster Blaster by Bill Budge. So Bill Budge is one of the names I remember from the Apple II time period. And there's an article about the best-selling software. And I, this must be a regular feature where they sort of list the business top 10 with PhysiCalc on top, and they list the home and hobby top 10 where DOS 3.3 was on top. And then there's a, sort of like a top 30 of all the software out there for the Apple II. So it's an interesting list. Raster Blaster was on top. There's a bunch of games by Nasser up there. Space Eggs is number three. Uh, Pulsar 2 is at number 14. Audubon is at number 17. Another name I remember, Silas Warner, made a game called ABM. That was at number 22. Zork was at number 10. Sabotage, oh, Sabotage, that's at number 11. Bruce Artwick's Flight Simulator by Sublogic was at number 12. So it's an interesting list. I'm. It'd be neat if this would happen, you know, monthly and... Uh, I don't recall any of the Atari magazines having this sort of list. Well, that's it for Soft Talk Magazine. I hope you enjoyed hearing a little bit about a competitor's magazine. I think this will be a semi-regular feature where I'll cover, you know, some magazine from one of the competing platforms and, you know, Apple II, Commodore 64, or the likely candidates. Oh, maybe I'll find a BBC Micro one. That'd be fun to look at. Next up is our interview. This is an interview-only episode. No game review this time. This is an interview with Chuck Boucher, who is one of the founders of Origin Systems and wrote a bunch of Apple II stuff and ported several games to the uh, Atari. He had Ultima, ported Ultima 2 and Ultima 3 to the Atari, ported Jawbreaker 2, and then ported some of his own games like uh, Caverns of Callisto to the Atari. This interview was conducted on February 3rd, 2015. Well, yeah, again, thanks for, thanks a lot for coming on. I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you about stuff. Perfect. Um, so... I, you know, I think from the first time I, I encountered your name, I think it was the game uh, Apple Zap. Uh, oh, wow. Okay. I, when I was in school, we had um, Apple II. I think they're Apple II Plus. They were the Bell and Howell clones. I don't know if you remember those black Apple IIs. Rings a bell. Yeah, we had those in school. And so somebody brought in Apple Zap, and I remember playing that game. Um, Funny. Yeah, that was one of my very, very first. Uh, that, that was. God, in fact, I just I just had to pull up my project list that I have online. But uh, it, it, yeah, that was one of the, one of the games in my very first published product. Um, well, actually, technically my second published product, but uh, the first product with online systems was right. a collection of four games and uh, Laugh Pack and Apple Zap was one of them. <laughs> but that never went, made it to the Atari. Yeah, I looked at some. I looked at you like the first thing that made it to the Atari might have been Jawbreaker Two. I believe so. That or one of I'm looking here. Yes, before the I was going to say that or or Ultimate Two, but again, Judge, I can't even remember. I'm looking at the project list <laughs> here, and, and I've got Jawbreaker listed. Yeah, so that would have been it. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, a big. Uh, the, a lot easier than than it was on the Apple on the Atari 800 than the Apple II. Yeah, there was a little the help way on the Atari. graphics worked. Yeah. And um, did you was the Apple your first computer you really programmed? I remember in uh, I think the Matt Chat uh, episode you had a computer in school. Was it like a mainframe or something in high school? We had in high school. I I, I was probably a senior, um, and we had a core a pro- basic 
programming course, and we the whole class shared one teletype terminal that was a uh, remote terminal into a mainframe. And then I went on to um, actually, well, it, it basically they, they had a few computer courses in college, and um, the first courses were actually with punch cards. Oh yeah, I think which, I I just missed the punch cards. And was the was the uh, teletype machine you said was it paper tape back in in high school? Yeah. Yeah, you'd store your programs on paper tape, and uh, and and and, uh, and read them in every time. There was no disk storage, and and uh, that that was all it. It would, it would you know there was mo- no monitor. It was all just printed out on a on a oh, roll right. of uh, okay. paper. Yeah, it, so you, wow. So one, know, it's, really line editing one at one line at a time, and oh yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's how the line editors uh, all started. Like pretty was much because you didn't have a whole Unix? screen. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, yep yep those were the early days. And then so was was the Apple II really your first personal computer experience? It was it was I um, was taking these courses and uh, my friend Richard Garriott, uh, who went on to become Lord British of the <laughs> uh, Ultima series. Um, I was hanging out with him, and he was uh, making some decent money for a starving freshman on a Calabas. <laughs> and he said, Chuck, you should write something. I, you know, it's not that hard. And so I actually wrote a couple of the first games on his computer. And um, we were living across the hall from each other. And, and then I, um, you know, bought my own, and it all started, it all went off from there. I um, did Apple II games for a while, and... Uh, yeah, we started wanting to do ports, so I got an Atari 800, and that got me started with the Atari 800. Later, there was a Commodore 64. Like I said, the three of them all ran the same 6502 microprocessor, right. and all the programming was done, all the game programming was done in assembly language in those days. And so, um, yeah, there weren't many you know, other options, were there? It was, you know, Basic certainly wasn't fast enough, and yeah, Basic was not fast enough. Um, and and it, it it was interesting is when you would do the ports that um, it would always in general depending on the game the approach that I would take was to change as little as possible switch over the graphics and leave the rest of the game as is and so as we're going through doing it, it, testing and debugging these ports and and if they found a new bug the first thing we'd have to do is go and see if it existed on the apple ver you know on well the uh original versions that i ported were always apple oh right we would have to go back to the apple and see if the bug was there if it was then it was whoever wrote the apple program's (laughs) job to fix the bug it's like hey when i do these ports i port it bugs and all Well, yeah, and that's probably it. Makes a lot of sense to change as little as possible. And did you ever develop like toolkits for to help the porting? Or uh... yeah, I actually de- developed. There, there at the time, you know, you didn't really, you didn't have networks, or you know, we didn't. Yeah. Um, individual developers, companies did, but uh, no, I actually had to develop my own. You basically would look at what kind of I/O the computer had. And uh, I'd, I'd build up a cable and write some communication software to um, download files. I typically, when I was doing these ports, I would do all the development and uh, and even the compiling on the Apple. Oh, really? And then it, it, it was a cross-compile, basically. I'd, I'd do the compiling on the uh, Apple and then shoot the file, the data, 
over to the target computer. And from there, you would use the disk commands or whatever tools you would have to write up to save the files off onto floppy disk. But uh, getting the information from the Apple to the target was all custom work. So I, I built cables for that and wrote the software and, and had my own tools. Oh, wow, okay. And then when you, for the compiling itself, though, you I guess, you know, today we're used to like all these libraries and stuff, and I guess when you're writing straight assembly for 6502, you're really... There you, were you no libraries. Yeah, yeah, you're writing everything. So it didn't matter that you compile it for the Atari on the Apple. Exactly. And now that there was, there was always some wrong, there was, you know, it's hard to call it an operating system, you know, such as it was. There, there were library calls that were native in ROM on the machine. Yeah, so you true. could call a certain address and with, with certain parameters on the stack and that would save a file or save a disk sector or whatever. Um, and, and, and so those routine, you know, and, and, and there was some basic, uh, depending on the machine, I can't even remember how, uh, say, keyboard IO worked on, on the Atari. So, so there were, there were, there were functions for that, but, but that was it. And, and so, um, yeah, it, 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 you, you'd modify your code to use those functions. The, uh, you would define the addresses in your, say, header files. Right, yeah. Your assembly files. And and basically, those are the hard coded addresses that get called when it's when it's running on the uh, when the native code's running on the machine on the target machine. Oh yeah, so then yeah, yeah you can compile it on the Apple using these you know JSRs to whatever routine would make sense on the Apple. But then when you transmit it to the Atari, then of course that then it would work. Yeah. Yeah, you just define the addresses differently. Yeah. Okay. And and update the parameters as as appropriate to the. Yeah. But yeah, that's the way it worked. Wow, that's interesting. It, so, um, which is the, the the same, you know, very similar. Well, to I, I guess you know, say developing for an Arduino. I guess I haven't done any. I've no, yeah, I haven't done any Arduino development, but I believe that's cross compiled as well. But for that, I guess you do have libraries that uh, you link in. Oh yeah. Well, I guess you know these, the hardware is just so much more capable now, and you know stuff is done for you more in hardware than it used to be, and. So that that was pretty much it. It. Um, Do you remember it what? All, the... I, I remember it was a big deal when we got a symbolic assembler that would let you define labels for memory addresses. Oh really? So you guys were otherwise? Wow. Yeah. Otherwise, we had to keep our own tables of memory addresses and what what you know it, it, the, where our variables were. Oh, I never even thought about that. So it was all. So you're actually essentially you weren't coding much above you know raw machine language. It it was not raw, it was assembly language. I mean, raw machine language technically is just the hex, yeah, just the hex, hex strings. Yeah. So yeah. right. So I guess but, yeah. Well, there was you know symbols for you know AS, we, ASL. We did have whatever. mnemonics, and yeah. it, it, actually now that I think about it, I guess the way to do it was you would define. No, see, I don't think we could define constants. Wow. I can't even remember. But you, you know, we couldn't define labels for constants. Um, so I would guess then that yeah we would have to keep our own tables. I, I, again, this was you know over 30 years ago. So. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, how, and it's... and we certainly embraced the symbolic assemblers when we <laughs> when when they were, were available. Do you remember the names of those assemblers? I don't really know much Apple. I think it was Lisa or Liza was the assembler, hmm. not to be confused with the <laughs> business Macintosh computer. Which I think was also a uh, Lisa, but but L I S A. 
<sighs> you know, up until a year and a half ago, I'd be able to turn around, you know, walk upstairs and um, find all that documentation. But when I, I, I moved from Austin over a little over a year ago, and at that time I finally got tired of hauling all, I had all my 8-bit development gear on, on all the three platforms. I had all my source code. Oh, wow. Floppies and, and the floppy drives and, and all of that. I uh, donated it to the uh, University of Texas uh, Computer Game Archive. I I saw that referenced on the, one of the Matt Chat episodes, and I went and looked at it. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. I guess you donated a lot of stuff. Uh, I guess Richard Gary donate, donated a lot of stuff. Uh, yeah. 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 And I was I was just in Austin recently, and I I don't know if they have a, a do they have a like a. Uh, a demo or uh, a room or physical space for it yet, or is this all just? Well, it's no, it's not. I mean, it, it is just. It's pretty much for, as I understood it, they were. It, it was put up, set up for academic research. You know, it, it's an archive. Basically, oh, you gotcha. go in, and um, I would imagine they have indices of everything that they have, and and you pretty much would figure out what you want and submit it at a desk, and then they'll go and retrieve it, and and bring it out. Wow. You know, whether it's note, hand notes or, or um, you know, I, I donated the hardware as well. So you should, a lot of the stuff, if it still runs, whatever runs, you'd be able to pull the computer out and if you and set it up and, and pull some of the files off of the uh, floppy wow. disks if you wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> well, next time I'm in Austin, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> it, probably, it would probably be a good idea to set up an appointment. Yeah. <laughs> just to make sure all the, you know, everything's... Um, Everybody's yeah. ready for you, and they yeah, and they, and they allow just a, a random yeah. fan from back in the day to, to check that out. But uh, no, that's great. Yeah, so it's 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 nice to hear that kind of stuff is being preserved, though. So so yeah, thanks from the from the community for uh, for doing that. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah. But um, so yeah, that that's pretty much how it worked. It was uh, a different world from today. One <laughs> for per, sure. one person <laughs> typically did the whole thing, you know. I, I did all my own sound and all my own graphics and my own, um, you know, design and programming. Yeah, so different from today when they're just teams and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and nothing was funded. Typically, you know, it's all freelance. You do your game, you'd shop it around, hopefully find a publisher, and you'd get royalties. And if if, if it sold, you'd get royalties. If it didn't, you got nothing. Yeah, that is much different. But uh, that that was it. Uh, the, I do remember the Atari was uh, the graphics were very unusual. It uh, they had a lot more capabilities than the um, Apple did. I believe it had more colors. If I remember right, you could for the on the 800, and I guess the 400 was the same, but it didn't have a keyboard. Yeah, yeah, it, that's pretty much what it was. It was the same. Yeah. Same thing, but no keyboard. But um, you could program the graphics mode line by line, and yeah. as to whether I, I can't even remember if it mixed character lines in with graphics lines or, or what. Yeah. I don't think yeah. you had sprites at the time. Um, yeah, uh, they had they had some. They didn't have like the Commodore sixty four, which I think you also developed on had. Like really big sprites, they were like 24 bits wide or something like that. It had the uh, you're right, the arbitrary sprites that you could move around anywhere. Um, yeah, the, the Atari had they had they were eight bits wide, but they could be as tall as the screen. But there was there was four of them, four sprites. Okay. And um, but yeah, the Commodore 64 I think had either more sprites or bigger sprites or both. I, oh yeah. But yeah. And, 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 and the, the Atari was. had better sound. I, I think it had a tone generator 
or maybe a multi multiple tone generator. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and compared to the Apple II, that all you had is it, it, technically a half a bit output half for bit. your sound. <laughs> I, I say a half a bit because it was you really only had one one bit output, and it was speaker out or speaker in, <laughs> and you didn't know if it was out or in. All you knew, you would read an address, and it would change. It would toggle the, the state. So if you do that fast enough, it, you know, then, then your speaker's oscillating, and you can generate tones. So, but the Atari was was far easier <laughs> in that respect. Well, you know, it really was designed almost two years later, so it was almost like a half a generation, if not a whole generation, ahead of the Apple II. Um, so that, you know, there's a couple of years of experience, and, and yeah, yeah. Um, so, so that, that was it. Yeah. I, I, I'm trying to think. Um, was um, so, you know, back to Apple's app, and I guess the what was it called, the Laugh Pack? That was your four Laugh Pack. Name. Yep. So that was online systems that you distributed that, was that online through? systems. Yes, later did, to become Sierra Online. Yeah. Did you? So you, as you're as you're saying, do you, you kind of did that on your own and then and shopped it around and found uh, online? Is that how they? Became to publish. Well, I I had a foot in the door because Richard was already um, published by them. Oh, okay. And and so through him, I you know got an introduction and was able to submit things. They're like, sure. I actually Laugh Pack. I'm trying to think. I wrote the first couple, maybe of those in um, Austin, and then three of us went up. Um, Ken Williams, the, the, then the president of online, yeah. said, "Come on out, we'll we'll put you up." They they uh, put us up with a place to live for the summer, and uh, we wrote games, and that was it, it's still on spec. It was it was pretty much we'll give you a place to live, and and you do your independent game stuff. And, oh, really? Uh, we'll go from there, and and um, so I, I let me think, how did it work? Uh, gosh. I don't even remember the three of uh, me, Richard Garriott, Keith Zabalawi. Uh, we were up there for the summer, and I think I went back for. I don't even remember who stayed and who left in the fall. Hmm. But the um, following fall in '80 uh, started Origin Systems. Oh yeah, and uh, when you were out there, and and so this is in. Uh, shoot, I forget the name. His place in California, or the or online. Course gold. Course gold or, or Oakhurst. Oakhurst, yeah, that's the name. Or Oakhurst, yeah. yeah. So that was that was near the uh, the big house that they had. Um, the Sierra oh, can well can remember the, this house. The, I don't know the the, the 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 octagon house was where they put the programmers up. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> that that what do you mean like a big house that uh, Ken and Roberta had? Oh well, I, I just mean for the oh with their infamous hot tub, <laughs> the um, um, no, I just mean were so were you working like near other programmers that online? So could you like, share resources oh. and stuff? And, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that a big? Was yeah, that a big and then, help? And then later they we I mean we we would come into a you know we had office space that we would come in and we're we're all in the same big oh, office okay. space hanging out and making games. Yeah. How how competitive was it with the people there and in, in um, at online? I mean, in did you share code with each other, or was it all pretty? Were you pretty? Oh, we didn't like, share code. I mean, we would share techniques and stuff and okay. ideas. Um, 
I wouldn't think of it. I don't remember it as being particularly uh, competitive, uh, you know, or, or secretive or anything like that. Okay, um, yeah. At the same time, it wasn't like there was a common code base. We were all, um, you know, writing our own things. Um, I don't, and, and 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 they were all under license. I can't remember who technically owned the source code. I, I guess we did, the the developers. Oh, okay. And, yeah. and so, um, you know, every, every, our our code was pretty much proprietary, but but you know, techniques and stuff like that. I I, I don't think there was a lot of secrecy. You know, a lot of it could be reverse engineered. You know, the the uh, you, you know. You look at how it's done, and and eventually it gets out how, um, you know, one thing or another has been done. Yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of brushes on a topic I definitely want to come back to in a second, which is you know copy protection and piracy and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But for now, so af- so when you left um, or when you went back after that summer, is that when you started talking with Richard and and I guess Robert Garrett as well about starting Origin Systems? Well, I'm trying to think. I think I stayed through. I was there the summer of '82, and I stayed through the fall. That's when I dropped out of school. That was it. Is the the prior spring was my last full time semester at University of Texas until I went back. Mm. So I stayed through the fall, and Richard, I think, went back at the end of the summer. And uh, at the end of the fall, he said, Chuck, come on back to Houston. We're going to start our own game company. And, and so I, I came back at the, you know, like in December of 82. And, um, you know, we started Origin in, in uh, March of 83. So I, I, uh, what was I developing? 2400 AD? No. Is that Caverns of Callisto? Uh, Caverns of Callisto, that's it. It was my uh, first one with Origin. I think it was, it was Caverns and of Callisto and Ultima 3 were the sort of the initial launch products for Those Origin. were our initial launch products, yeah. And I think technically Caverns was released first, but not by much. Actually, I played the Atari version the other day and... Uh, it's yeah, it's uh, more of an arcade game, more kind of my style game. <laughs> yeah, I always did more of the, uh, the arcadey yeah. instead so, of the adventures. I, I of course I played Ultima and, and enjoyed it, but it's just you look. I try to, pl- to play adventure games now. It's just like I don't have the time. I like these pick up and play games where I can. <laughs> right, I'm in the same boat with that. <laughs> <laughs> so when you guys talked about setting up Origin, um, how? I'm I'm sure there's a big process to set up a corporation. Uh, what kind of I don't know, did you were you involved much of that I guess in that paperwork? Well, in the setup that that was Robert's job. He was he was the businessman. Oh, okay. Richard and I were the uh game developers. So we didn't we didn't have to deal with accounting and and taxes and corporate setup and all of that. That was uh, Robert had just uh, finished his MBA at uh, MIT, I believe. And uh so that that was his job to set the company up and run it. Oh, that's it's nice to have a, a business person to do that because that's that is yep. a full time job for sure. That's a lot of stuff. So, were you guys like a, a essentially co owners of the? Yeah, yeah. There were four founders: uh, Richard Garriott, Robert Garriott, the brothers, uh, Owen Garriott, their father, and me. And and that was it. We were it, it was unfunded. We started it, or, or we didn't have any outside funding. We we all put our own money in, and uh, and that was it. And then you started. Was it 
I guess initially you started in Houston within the was it out right out of the Garriott's house? We started out in their garage above their garage in uh, Houston, and then later moved to gosh was it uh, to was it originally in Massachusetts or New Hampshire? Anyway, it, 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 up yeah, I guess we were in Andover, Massachusetts, and then and, and eventually Richard moved uh, part of the development down to Austin. And and they, they they that was after I I sold out in 1980. I, so I was we started the company in '83. I sold my shares back to them in '88. Okay. And went my own way. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so when they for, former were formally in Austin was after I left. Oh okay. And I and I did you know I wasn't estranged or anything. I, I ended up doing some uh, contracting for them a few years later. In fact. But while you were with the, while you were an owner, then were, did you follow the corporation to Andover in New Hampshire and stuff, or were you? Yeah, we we packed it all up and had, I guess, we the two U-Haul trucks and a few cars, <laughs> and uh, drove in in, I guess it was March, but I think it was snowing by the time we got up there, and and drove straight up to uh, New England. <laughs> <laughs> Must have been a lot of hardware too, because I read that you had a whole bunch of the like manufacturing stuff and. We we had a bit, but the manufacturing facilities were not that extreme. Our office was probably a thousand feet, a thousand square feet, if that. Really? Yeah. Wow. We would fall. I mean, there there was no disc duplication involved. Somebody sitting in front of about eight drives that were set up to duplicate discs, and and <laughs> and all day they're inserting discs and and pulling them out, and everything was hand assembled and really. And, Wow. Shrink wrapped, actually hand shrink wrapped for years, <laughs> maybe forever. I don't know if they ever jobbed out manufacturing. Wow! So all so you know when you pick up a box that you know Caverns of Callisto or Ultima or whatever it was all handmade right there and yeah know. we would fold the box we got the boxes and it was flat cardstock we'd have to fold the boxes ourselves. <laughs> Wow. I wonder how many could do those a day before you got Everybody would join in. We all folded boxes. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose like a, at the initial release of a game, it must have just been crazy trying to get all the orders. and. Pretty much. Pretty yeah. much. Yeah, and you remember how many like units you might have shipped for various games? I don't remember. I don't remember how many units. So much just it wasn't, it wasn't millions, you know. If 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 we could sell, uh, I I think if I remember right, if I figured if we sold twenty five thousand units, then that was kind of a break even, something like that. But I could be wrong, you know. If, if something sold fifty thousand, it was doing okay. If you made a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand, you're doing pretty darn well. And all those boxes stuffed by the employees and discs du- duplicated by hand and. <laughs> yep. Wow. Yeah. Now this is way back early, you know, in the early days. It is in, in the eighties. Yeah. So the the numbers got much larger later. But still, that's a, that's that's a lot of work for sure. And you know, in addition to all your other duties to you know develop games and stuff. So. Yeah. So uh, so how when you guys at Origin there when you um, I mean how were the how did you guys decide what to do next? Was there like voting processes with everybody? Did everybody pitch games to each other? And, and uh... no, it's pretty much. I mean, we would we would talk about stuff, but people were pretty much on on their own to do what they wanted to do. Um, you kind of you know it's it, it's the developers at the developers' risk that the, you, you know that that you'd end up with something that nobody wanted to publish. <laughs> 
I mean, there, there were, there was, uh, there, it, it, discussions would go on, but, uh, no, it was pretty, pretty much, uh, up, up to the individuals. I mean, it, it, by the time it's all said and done, um, you've got a pretty good idea if, if something you're working on is not going to fly, you know, is, is not going to be something that, uh, you know, it, it, well, that Robert wants to spend money on. All right. So, You'd but no, there was no formal, formal voting process or vetting process or anything like that. It was all just ad hoc. Oh, okay, so you can you'd start developing on something and then show it around, and if it didn't look like... Yeah, that was pretty much it. Okay. Um, do you know, I was just curious, do you know how the logo was made? Because it's really cool. I like the, you know, the Cartesian sort of axes on its origin. Did that? We The old logo, we came up with yeah. that ourselves. The name, the logo, or, or at least the basic um, concept of it. You know, it, 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 the, the, Cartesian, the Cartesian grid, you know, it's like, uh, you yeah. know, we were trying to make, figure up a name for the company. It's like origin. Well, it's just the origin of all great things or whatever. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things that we can do with it. And this, this was long before the We Create Worlds um, tagline. Yeah, you know, we saw that there was a, you could tie in the, the Cartesian grid and the origin being the zero, zero point, all of that. And so that's what we ran with. Yeah. When you guys did advertising, did did uh, you have an ad agency that would create sort of like you know copy for magazines and stuff? Or I do don't believe we went, had an agency. We, I can't I can't remember who did co initially for the first many years. Uh, I uh, you know you know there wasn't too much to the game. There wasn't much to the copy. Um, and and we'd have Dennis Lubay did I don't know how many maybe all of the uh, you know we typically we would do up some covers and that's what we would use. As the uh, ads is, is the box covers, and, oh, right, and yeah. uh, we throw throw a little bit of text up there and some descriptions and requirements and all of that. But that was it. Were you involved in like um, hiring people when when you brought like Did you have any uh, like employees? a little bit? But that was pretty much up to um, Robert. Or you know, Richard started bringing on teams for his ultimate work, and, and you know, certainly he hired the. Uh, Folks, for that, uh, were you ever involved but, but, in like any interview processes, or did that? Not that I remember. <laughs> <laughs> See, we we didn't have a programming staff the whole time that I was there. There was no programming staff, and so I would have been involved with that. But the rest, that was up to Robert. And people you brought in to help were like contractors, like uh, that you eventually became. Yeah, yeah, or other independents, similar to what we did with, um, you know, Origin. Yeah, we'd yeah. give them some office space, and and um, you know see what they did and maybe publish it <laughs> yeah and so when you left origin you is that when you founded craniac craniac is it, it, pretty much i came up with the name it it, it um you know the whole time i've had a, my own business you know even when i was with origin i wasn't it, 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 it's worth it i wasn't on staff there i was a founder i was a board member and i got uh profit distributions but I didn't have a salary. My income was through my game development. So the royalties. And so initially it was what Boucher Interests or Chuck Boucher or whatever as an independent, uh, you know, a, a sole proprietorship. And um, then up into the 90s, I started thinking, okay, I need, I need a name better than Boucher Interests or whatever. And, and uh, so uh, a, buddy, a buddy of mine actually came up with the name Craniac. And I liked it, and and it stuck. And um, 
So I, I ran with that from the early 90s, and then in the mid-90s, I registered for the domain name, craniac.com, which <laughs> I've had then, but I didn't incorporate until 2005. Oh, okay. Before then, it was all uh, infinite. It, it was just a sole proprietorship, me, me doing business as a sole proprietor. So I, so the, um, the games you released with Origin were like, Caverns of Callisto, and then you did a lot of porting work, um, like Ultima Three, and and then did you port Auto Duel? I, oh, I think actually Auto Duel didn't didn't get it released for the eight hundred or I did it. I, I think I did. Let me look. Actually, so I'm I looking think actually here. It did. Looks yeah, like I did. I did Ultima Two and Three on the Atari, Ultima Three and Four on the Commodore, and Auto Duel. I think I did for the Commodore, but I'm not sure. Yeah, and then it was later done, I believe, ported to the P finally by John Romero. Heard that name somewhere before? <laughs> he he yeah, worked at Origin before he set up... Um, before um, he did Doom. Doom, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, Caverns of Callisto, I, I was... You know, I, I looked at that on the Apple II, and that's that's one of the first that I can remember, like, scrolling games on the Apple II that was, that was fast at all. Well... Everything that I did, you know, it, it, my games may not have been big hits, although Auto Duel did, did do very well. Um, but I always did try to do something technically interesting in, in all of them. And that was the big deal with Caverns of Callisto was the arbitrary 2D scrolling. Right. And uh, there wasn't any game that was doing that at the time. And, it, and it's because the uh, you know the CPU the, the we're running a one bit a one megahertz eight bit CPU with no graphics acceleration yeah. so everything was just memory mapped graphics and on the Apple it was all the the, the memory map was very peculiar but um, that's actually the reason if you remember the the, the backgrounds the land masses the rocks or whatever mm-hmm. they're not solid it's only every four lines. Yeah. And the reason for that is for speed. It, it, to to do the to do it solid, it was too slow. And interestingly enough, what it took to pull that off is was self modifying code. I couldn't. It was even too slow to do a loop. Really. To loop through your. Um, I, I guess I probably went vertical. With, with, for say a line of drawing instead of horizontal, and I can't remember why. And and what I did because even just looping over that much screen area was too slow. Hmm. I I said I would set up an enormous table of straight stores. You know, it's store here, store here, store here, store here, store here for every line. And if I wanted to do a vertical line, I would jump into a por- point in that. T- I would insert a return uh, oh, well, yeah. command in the middle of that table, and I would jump to a certain point in it, and that would set my top and bottom points for the vertical line. Hmm. And and then I'd have to unwind, you, you know, take out the JSR and do the next column. <laughs> and that's the only way I could do it that fast. Wow, yeah. Yeah, the techniques you don't have to use today, you know, all the stuff, all the optimizations were, yeah. Really impressive that he had to do on the 6502. Oh, yeah, the stuff that we did. I, I remember going through 32K, of, you know, and this is for any of those, any of the, the, the Atari, the, the Apple, any of them. Um, 
you, you could be going through, I would need one byte out of, out of you know, it, we'd have like 38K when, once you, you know, remove stuff for the ROM, you know, address, address space. You only had 64K of address space. Right. And, and uh, it, we didn't have memory banking, really, not on the mainstream systems. And, and so between the, the screen map and the operating system and all of that, I think the Apple had 32 or 38 left over. The Atari, it was different, but I think it might have had a little more. But I remember having to go through everything. It, 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 and, and we didn't have linkers. You had to set up all your memory maps by hand of where your blocks of code are going to be and where your variables are. And I would be yeah. short one byte. <laughs> and I'd have to go searching through, and it turns out that you would. there was a typical order if you were doing a branch, it would run faster, I think, if the branch is not taken. And so you, you would set up your logic that way for faster code. But when you started needing memory, you could start, you'd switch the branch logic, and it would save you a byte. <laughs> And uh, but it was at the cost of a clock cycle, if I remember right. I think that was the situation. Oh, the trade-off. And, and yeah. I, I remember having to hunt through code. It's like, oh, I need, you know, you'd start off. It's like I need 16 bytes, and then <laughs> you'd you'd scram, look around, and typically that's where where you'd find it is switching these this branch logic. Oh, interesting. And and uh, you know, finally down to okay, I only need one more byte. I've got to find <laughs> one byte somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, isn't that so funny? You know how how far how much computers have changed that you know you're scrounging for each individual byte, and nowadays you you barely think about memory at all. Oh yeah, you know now you've got a 64-bit processor that that you know the the, the smallest machine command is is eight bytes wide. Yeah, <laughs> it's a different world. Did you even clear the screen at all, or did you kind of redraw the whole screen when you? Uh, there really was well. There, you only had one buffer, so there, there was no. Uh, you, you had to redraw the screen the whole time. Actually, actually, I'm trying to think. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Well, it, it would depend on the game. It, it yeah. would depend highly on the game. Actually, with the um, was it the Apple um, on Jawbreaker Two? In fact, I had to do. I used exclusive ORs. All, all of that animation mm-hmm. because those. Rolling faces were so big, I didn't have time to do an erase draw. Oh, yeah. So I did an exclusive or, and that would erase the trailing pixels and and draw the leading pixels in the animations, and so it kind of locked in the animations. And and so, yeah, we would just use all sorts of weird techniques um, to, to, uh, you know, gain speed. Yeah, techniques that just... I'm trying to think, though. Yeah, caverns... Uh, caverns, I might have done a, a clear screen. But yeah, Can't remember. That, that does take a lot of time too. So that's probably an unrolled loop or something. And yeah, yeah, that's pretty much the uh, state of things. Yeah. <laughs> back in the day. Do you do you miss those days? I mean, do you like do you, do you like the development back then? Oh. I mean, it's, it's, you're certainly yeah. you you were on the like the forefront of a lot of these. I'm, I'm having a lot of fun today. I mean, the, these these days when I'm doing the theme park stuff. I mean, that's, that's, I'm loving that. I mean, how can you beat making uh, interactive attractions for Disney? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, well, well, good luck with the, with the new work, and thanks again for all your, all your time here and, and for the, the work you did. I certainly enjoyed the, the stuff you wrote for, for Origin and, and the Atari. And, uh, well, thank you. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Chuck. Appreciate it. Okay.
Thank you. Okay. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye. So thanks again to Chuck for taking the time to talk to me. I We sort of ran out of time. I wanted to talk more about piracy and how piracy affected their business. Um, that's, you know, that letter to Scott Adams and stuff and piracy being a, one of the regrets of my early career with computers. Yeah, I was going to try to ask him if, about how, you know, what steps they took to combat piracy and, you know, the copy protection and stuff and how it affected them, you know, their bottom line, if they got any sense. But, um, yeah, we ran out of time. So if, if I get a chance to do more interviews with developers, I, I definitely want to talk about that and ask them how it affected them, you know, personally, because we're really talking about taking taking money away from them doing piracy. Now, I, of course, I didn't appreciate that when I was a kid. It was, it was all about, well, I probably wouldn't have bought, bought this game anyway, and so I'm really not harming anybody, but not to beat this dead horse continuously, but it did it obviously affected this Atari software market. I don't know, maybe that's kind of why I'm more involved in the open source community than the sort of commercial software community. Is Maybe it's my <laughs> my penance you know, to give back if I can, contribute in some small way. So I've sp- certainly spent many, 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 many hours writing open source stuff. Not that it's had, I've not had any ser- terribly big projects, but you know, I've, I've gotten feedback on for, from some people who use some of my stuff and it's satisfying to know that I've maybe contributed some small amount to the open source community. And the idea of, I guess, not not getting paid for it is my my penance. I mean, that's not to say I don't enjoy the sort of the ethos of the, the open source software community, because I do. I think, you know, I'm, I'm very supportive of, of open source and things being available and people to fix it if they run into their own problems. I remember there was a... I was My, my first professional job was writing software on this IBM RS6000 machine. It was a Unix machine. Running well, it was AIX. It was just IBM's flavor of Unix. And they had a great debugger called XLDB. I think he has told this story before. I will humor him because he uses it to raise the point. But we had to write in Fortran and it and didn't support Fortran very much. And I just remember it, in C it was great. And this, you could, it just had all sorts of columns. You could see every variable, the register states of the processor, all this stuff. It was, and it was, had a really easy interface. It was not complicated by lots of levels of, you know, menus or indirection or stuff. It was, everything was right there, but it didn't support Fortran that well. And I, I remember I actually, I called IBM and, and was like, seriously, I will, I'll donate my time for free to get this to work, but they just wouldn't release the source code. And that lesson kind of stuck with me and, and just being able to fix whatever little itch I have with the software, having an open source and, you know, well, then spending enough time to try to figure out the source and learning it. But still, the possibility is there. Anyway, so if you're interested in any of my open source stuff, it's at uh, GitHub. I'll include a link in the show notes. I th- yeah, well, if you go to, if you go check out the Star Raiders stuff, my uh, my other software is available at the same place on GitHub. So that's it for July 1981. I think July, is that right? Or July, yeah. So next issue, <laughs> next issue, next episode will be August of 1981. And it'll be another interview episode. I've got an interview with James Haig, who wrote the book Halcyon Days, which is a collection of a bunch of interviews with some uh, retro game programmers. And he's the maintainer of the giant list of classic game programmers, which I refer to all the time in this podcast. And, if that weren't enough, he wrote a bunch of games that were published in both Analog and Antic Magazine. So that's a great interview, and I hope to get this uh, this next episode out pretty soon as well. And then for September, I think I'll have a game review. I think probably September I'll do Missile Command, because I really want to talk about GCC and their Super Missile Attack arcade game. So I'll use that as an excuse to talk about an arcade game. For Arcade Game Podcasts, make sure you're listening to Tenpence Arcade from the UK and No Quarter here in the US. 
both of which are great podcasts that I always enjoy listening to. Reminder, the Atari Party is coming up in May. So if you're here out here in the Bay Area, hopefully you'll be able to make it up to that show. So I'm a proud member of the Throwback Network, so check out throwbacknetwork.net for lots of retro gaming and retro theme podcasts. Thanks for listening to this podcast about the Atari that we all remember as Atari and not not the, not the Atari that's currently trying to mess with Jeff Minter. Llamas forever! The first Jeff Minter game I really remember is, is Llamatron on the Atari ST, which is a clone of Robotron. But it doesn't really have music, so here's some music from Tempest 2000 on the Atari Jaguar. And I will see you next episode. He forgot feedback. Send email to feedback at playermissile.com or on Twitter. He is at Atari 8 Games. Thank you.